0: You're probably wondering what on earth that delightfully uplifting text has to do with lent um nancy knows she was there at the early service today uh but i'll tell you that's what the sermon's for so you all know the story of esther right you're all, you're all very familiar with the intricacies and the details of the story it's a fascinating and complicated one but we don't get to hear it very often although there is a veggie tales movie about esther so you could watch that Um, I think Esther might be, I don't remember what produce item she is, but it's not biblical. Uh, But we only get to hear this once in the entire three-year cycle of readings from our lectionary. And even then, we only get to hear a few verses cobbled together from a couple chapters that we heard in our reading today. But in Jewish tradition, Esther takes center stage every year Uh, during the Festival of Purim, which happens to fall this year. It's different every year depending on the Jewish calendar, but it happens to fall this year on this coming Monday evening. And so it's appropriate, uh, I think, to read it in this context, and I think it's appropriate to read it in the context of our Lenten theme created for community. But more on that in a little bit. Now, Esther is short enough to read in one sitting. It's only 10 chapters long. It's a little too long to read in one sitting here right now, although we would if we could. Um, But here's a Cliff Notes version. So, Esther, the story of Esther takes place uh, a long, long time ago, probably sometime in the 4th century BCE. And the Jews are living at this time in Diaspora when they're controlled by the Persian Empire. And so one day, the Persian king Ahasuerus nailed it again, Uh, throws this wild party, which quickly gets out of hand as the guests become increasingly intoxicated. And by day seven of this party, can you imagine day seven of a party? The inner introvert in me is screaming. Uh, But one day uh, on day seven, after they're really drunk, the king gets an idea, kind of a stupid idea, but he says, let's have the queen Vashti come out and parade herself around for us. Well, Vashti is having absolutely none of that, Uh, And she says no, and then that's a decision that gets her pretty quickly booted from the royal court. So King Ahasuerus needs a new queen, and this is where Esther comes in. After a sort of convoluted beauty pageant of sorts that's all sorts of problematic, Ahasuerus falls for Esther and decides that she's the one. And the key detail to know about Esther is that she's Jewish. And Ahasuerus doesn't know that, at least not yet, because this is a time when Jews weren't exactly the most popular ethnic group, and so she had to keep those secrets in order to be in this position of power and prestige. So not long after she becomes queen, uh, her uncle Mordecai, uh, who she had been living with, overhears a plot to assassinate the king. Uh, A plot which he passes on to Esther, and Esther passes on to the king, and they quickly squash this plan, and the king's life is saved. It's an important detail for a little bit later on, but then attention shifts once more, uh, this time to Haman, who has just been promoted in the court of the king to a really important, pretty much second-in-command position. Uh... And with Haman's promotion comes some pretty nifty perks, such as requiring everyone to bow down to you whenever they see you. That's pretty nifty, I think. I think I could go for that job. Uh, But Mordecai refuses. He has principles, and Haman's a pretty bad guy. Uh, So Mordecai refuses, and Haman is livid at this response. And so he does the first thing that he can think of for revenge when he discovers that Mordecai is a Jew... He plots a way to have all the Jews in that region killed. It's a bit of an overreaction, but what's a little hyperbole to make for an engaging plot twist? It's a good story. Uh, It's a depressing story. It's a problematic story, but it's a good story plot-wise. So when Mordecai finds out, he's understandably deeply troubled and worried by this news, but he has an idea. His niece, Esther, now a queen and being Jewish herself, she's a part of the royal court. She has access to the king. She could go to him and intervene and prevent this massacre from taking place. Now, it's incredibly risky for Esther to go to the king, for anyone to go to the king uninvited. It could cost her her life on the spot. But she's willing to do it. And in fact, she says something like, you know, if I die... I die, but I have to do this. I have to at least try. Now, in the meantime, Haman, who has a little bit of an anger management problem, gets riled up again. Mordecai refuses to bow to him, and Haman decides he's going to have Mordecai specifically killed. And so with these plans set, Haman is quite pleased with himself. Things are working out. Things are looking up for him. He's about to rid himself of this thorn in his side, and he's just been invited to a banquet with the king and queen where there's talk of someone being specially honored. And of course, Haman, because he's so very clearly full of himself, thinks that it's him who's going to be honored. And so when the king is asking him, how should we honor this person? Haman really plays it up because he wants those things for himself. Little does Haman know that Ahasuerus is really talking about Mordecai, this person he just can't stand. Because the king finally realized that this guy that saved his life, he hasn't repaid him yet. And so he wants to honor Mordecai in this way, so things aren't looking up so much for Haman anymore. And then finally, the moment of truth comes at this next dinner banquet that Esther throws for the king and for Haman. And she drops this bombshell news that first, she's Jewish. And second, Haman is plotting to kill her and her uncle and all of her people. And Ahasuerus is infuriated by this news. Haman's going to kill his queen. He's going to kill the person who saved his life. He's going to kill all of these people. And so then the tables turn, and that's where the story comes in today. The king has Haman killed, ironically, on the very same gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then in some clever political maneuvering, because the king can't actually reverse the decree that he made to kill the Jews in the first place, Ahasuerus, Esther, Mordecai all have to figure out some creative way uh, to make that that not happen. They work it out. The story mostly winds up happily ever after. There's some other problematic stuff in there, but that's for another sermon. Uh, But this is a significant thing, that Esther has saved her people, and has avoided this calamity. And there's a lot more, obviously, that can be said about this book. And again, you can read it at home. It takes probably 30 minutes. But for our purposes for Lent, when we're focused on what it means to be created for community, I think that this book actually does a really good job in its own way of taking up the theme of community and about what it means to be a part of a community. It's clearly a very important story for the Jewish community, even to this day, and I think it has lessons that we could glean as well. So we know that community gives us a sense of identity and belonging, and when we belong to a community, we have a sense of purpose and commitment to that community, and it might even involve taking risks for the sake of that community. Surely Esther and Mordecai took huge risks in their commitments to their community. I think it would have been just as easy for Esther to keep quiet, to keep her identity secret, and to let Haman's plot be carried out. She probably would have been safe if the king never found out. Her sense of identity and belonging, however, didn't make that an option for her. She couldn't look the other way. Her sense of identity and belonging drove her sense of purpose and commitment and her desire to even take a huge risk to try to prevent this atrocity from happening to her community. Unlike Haman, self-centered that he is depicted, Esther knew that she didn't exist for herself, But she was a part of something larger, something beyond herself, a part of a wider community. And there's power to that kind of community and belonging. What does it feel like to be a part of a community like that? I imagine you're already starting to think of those communities where you feel like you belong For me, it felt like becoming a member of PROCLAIM, this professional organization for pastors, deacons, and seminarians in the Lutheran Church who also identify as LGBTQIA+. And so at my first annual PROCLAIM gathering, now almost four years ago, during opening worship, we're sitting in the chapel, and there was this litany that we started off with, naming significant events and ordinations in the history of our organization and our members, an organization that has roots in a historic movement that accompanied and supported gay and lesbian candidates for ordained ministry at a time when the church wouldn't officially accept them. And so as this litany began, it named each person who was ordained extraordinarily before the church changed course, and all of those who had been ordained since that time And as the names of those present were read, each person, as they were there, was invited to stand and take a hold of a piece of this string of red yarn, or this ball of red yarn that was being passed around. And then the litany continued on into the future, uh, naming seminarians like myself at the time uh, who would make up the future of this community, the future of the church, And as the yarn was passed to me, I too stood and I took a piece of that string of yarn. And then soon, this entire room was connected by a single strand of red yarn. And there was even uh, yarn going up into the balcony where one of our photographers was taking pictures. And it was just a tangled web and it was chaos, but it was beautiful. It was a beautiful sight. And I knew that in that moment, I belonged to that community. I knew that I was a part of something that was so much bigger than myself, that my call to ministry and my experiences mattered because of those early risk takers who had gone before me, those who were going alongside me, those who had come after me, who knew that this was a community worth fighting for, a community that we all had a stake in. Believe that we all have a community or more than one community like that. A community that gives us a deep sense of belonging and purpose. Maybe it's this church community. Or maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe it's the families that we're born into or the families and the friend groups that we choose later in life. Or maybe a combination of all of those things. Are you thinking of that? community for you or those communities for you? When we say that we're created for community, it's no small thing. Community means that we belong to something bigger than ourselves. It means that we have a sense of purpose and commitment to the people who make up that community with us. Community means being vulnerable and being brave and bold and willing to take risks for the sake of each other as together we walk into the future. It's a beautiful thing. It's a gift to be a part of community. We're created for community, created for each other. And we have the awesome and incredible calling to be a part of all of that. And maybe, just like Esther and perhaps one of the more famous lines from the entire book, maybe we all have been called for just such a time as this. Amen.